Well, good morning again, and uh, wow, that, that's pretty amazing that we had all these students appear, and there could be a lot more of them as well, uh, but they are making an impact, and you guys are making impact because of your giving on a regular basis. Uh, FCA is one that we invest in pretty heavily in our church because we believe in it a lot, believe in Bug, love Bug, and just this ministry and, and what's happening with our students as well as kids that go to other, other churches as well. Uh, it's spread uh, across many, many churches across our community. Well, guys, we're getting a new series today called Scent, called Scent, and I hope you kind of get a picture of that uh, as we move on. That's S-E-N-T, that maybe you'll uh, kind of figure out where we're going here. But have have you ever felt like you were sent on a mission that only you could do, only you could do it? I'm not talking about something weird, extreme like Mission Impossible, because most of us are not going to get called to do something like that. But I'm just talking about, you know, so you were chosen because of your skill set, because of your gifts, because of your experience, or because of the unique situation that just fitted you perfectly. And someone said to you, I've got to send you, nobody else will work but you. Now, I don't know if you can identify that in any level or not, but I do know that there's a satisfaction in knowing that you were chosen for a specific task that other people probably could not accomplish. And that the one who sent you had total confidence in you that you could do it. When no, you can do it. They, maybe they encouraged you before they sent you out. Maybe you identify with that on some level. But today, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, a series that called Sin. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus and how that Jesus was sent here to the earth for a specific mission that only he could, he could accomplish. And you know, when you look at the life of Jesus, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever at this point in life, you still have to acknowledge that Jesus had an exceptional life and that Jesus' life was very influential when he was here upon the earth. In fact, we would clearly say that Jesus' life was a sent life. It was a sent life, which makes the life of Jesus very unique, unique because of the mission to which he was sent for. In fact, Jesus said that his life was so unique that he was God himself. He was God in human form. Now, that's a huge claim to make and one that not too many people have ever made. Hopefully, uh, only he could really make a claim and back that up. But Jesus made this claim, and C.S. Lewis, who was a famous Christian writer uh, in the last, last century, he said this. He said, in fact, the claim was so bold that Jesus could only be one of three people, either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Because you don't make claims like that unless you can back it up, and Jesus did that. And we look at the life that Jesus lived, and we say, yeah, he proved that he was Lord. But the claim was so bold that it was just out there. And it's up to every one of us to determine exactly what did he mean, and did he tell the truth in the way he lived his life. When Jesus came, he is, or was, on the earth, and is currently God himself. You know, the Bible teaches that God is Trinity, that God is three in one. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't understand that fully, but we take it by faith. It means that there are three persons, but they are all one God. Three jobs, three responsibilities, three personalities, and yet they are one God, and Jesus is a part of that Trinity. Jesus the Son was sent here to earth on a search and rescue mission. That was the reason that he came to this earth. The fact that he was sent is what set him apart from any other person who ever lived on this earth. Very unique life, very unique calling that he had. And the fact that he was sent by God dominated his thinking, it directed his steps, 
It defined his mission. In fact, everything in Jesus' life was determined by the fact that he was sent by God. Jesus was never random in anything that he did. Everything he did was very intentional. He had an awareness that he was de- that determined everything that he chose to do and what he said as well. Listen to these, um, these statements that Jesus made only in the book of John. He said, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. The work of God is this, to believe in the one who sent me. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. My teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. I stand with the Father who sent me. The one who sent me is with me. We could go on and on and on in these statements of Jesus that he made, only in the book of John. In fact, over 30 times, just in this one gospel, Jesus talks about being sent. It was a theme of his life. He didn't come preloaded with that knowledge. You know, we don't believe that Jesus came as a baby. He knew everything. But as he came to know God and he grew and mature and was in tune with God, he understood that his life was a mission and that he'd been sent by God for a very specific purpose. Now, what was Jesus sent for? Just like Jesus knew that clearly he was sent from God and he knew who he was, he knew why he came to this earth. In fact, he said in Luke 19, I came to seek and save the lost. I came specifically, exclusively to seek and to save the lost. You know, I think it's interesting that the religious community of Jesus' day was his major competition. It wasn't the pagans out there who, who disagreed with what he said. It wasn't the government trying to stamp down his, his, his voice and his message. But in fact, it was the very people that you would have thought would have embraced him. The religious people were the people who opposed him the most. And that is so strange. You see, among the Jews of that day, the people to whom Jesus came, among the Jews, there were basically two types of people. There were religious people, many of whom were extremely religious, people like the Pharisees and Sadducees were the titles that that they carried. But they kept the law of Moses, sometimes very legalistically, down to the letter. In fact, they had created a whole additional system of laws to, to make it more difficult. They felt they were more godly, the better they could be and the more laws that they had. And on the other side was a group of people collectively called sinners. And these were people like tax collectors who everybody hated at that, in that day and prostitutes and people that had foul mouths and people with no morals and cheaters and liars and greedy people, you name it. I mean, the people who didn't even pretend to be good or pretend to know who God was, those were grouped in a, a, a group of people called the sinners. And strangely enough, Jesus gravitated toward this last group over the first. He did not find his place comfortably among religious people in that day. He loved to go where the sinners were. He loved to eat with the sinners. He loved to meet with them, to talk to them, and visit with them, and get to know them, and go into their homes even. And you know what? They listened to him. They received him, and they took in every word that he had to say because they were amazed at this man who loved them in spite of their sin. This man who never compromised anything, even though Jesus was with them and spent time with them and loved them, he never compromised his own values, which is how we're called to live as well, by the way. But he welcomed them and loved them. And they knew he actually wanted to be their friend. In fact, one of the accusations that his enemies, the religious people levied against Jesus, 
is that he was a friend of sinners. And that was an insult in their eyes, but Jesus took it as a compliment. I mean, he was thrilled to be referred to in that way. It, it, uh, it kind of was baffling to them as to why Jesus would, would turn them away and would turn toward the common people, the sinners of that day. And the sinners were amazed that he cared for them and he even sought them out. The religious people gathered in their huddles and criticized him and everybody else kind of embraced Jesus and crowded to hear what he had to say. And they said to, to Jesus many times, you know, why are you choosing them over us? I mean, don't you know that they're the enemy? This is like the good guys versus the bad guys. This is the red states versus the blue states. This is the, the pro-family, Caleb listening to fish sticker wearing right wingers versus the left-leaning gay marriage uh, supporting evolution believing uh, pro-choice pagans. I mean, if you want to put it in our terms today, that's kind of the lines they had drawn. And they said, you know what? We can't hang, you can't hang out with those people. And and if you claim to be the son of God, you can't be telling the truth. And this was what led to, to his ultimate demise as they were, were jealous of him and angry at him. And, and they just thought, you know what, you can't be a man of God and treat people and love people like that. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, it all kind of comes to a head. It did many times, brought a lot of opposition ultimately to his death. But in Luke 15, this is kind of how it, it played out one particular day. It says, now the, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Again, their accusation against him. Well, Jesus must have heard them because he launches into a set of stories, not one story, but in fact, three stories to try to explain to them what his mission was all about. And he told these stories. You've probably heard them before. The first one was about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And one evening, only 99 sheep showed up at the fold. And Jesus said he loved these, each of his sheep so much that he left the 99 and he searched until he found this lost sheep. And when he found the sheep, he put it on his shoulders and he carried it home and he called all of his friends to celebrate about a lost sheep. Most of us would be frustrated and angry that we had to go find it, but instead he threw a party and celebrated. The second story right after that is similar about a woman that had 10 coins who lost one coin and she tore her house apart. She tore the house up, taking everything apart, swept the house clean, and she found the one lost coin. And when she found that, she called all of her friends and neighbors in, and they had a party. Even though she didn't have much, she, she gave it out to her friends to celebrate with her because the one lost coin, only one-tenth of what she had. The third story you're probably more familiar with of a father who had an unappreciative son who asked for his inheritance early. Basically, it was an insult to his dad. I wish you were dead so I could have my money now, is what he was saying. And I really want to go and live life. And so the father knows it's not a good idea, but because he loved his son, at great personal sacrifice, he gave his son half of his estate. And true to what the father thought, the son promptly left home, went out and blew everything he had, all of his father's money on wild living, ended up broken and living alone and starving. Until he thought to himself, you know what? Even the servants in my father's house have it better than this. I'm going home. And I want to just come up and crawl to my dad and say, Dad, will you please forgive me? Will you let me just be a servant in your house? I, I don't deserve to be a son, but I, I just want to be a servant. And so he heads home with his heart heavy and no doubt fearful of his father's reception. But you know the story. When he gets there, 
His father rushes out to meet him because he's been watching for his son to come home. And he embraces him, and he puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his shoulders, which covers this naked guy up, and he throws an extravagant party in, in honor of him. And he says, my son was dead, and now he's alive again. You know, I love those series of stories because they show us what God thinks about people who are far from him. He, doesn't, he isn't angry with them. He, he longs to be with them. And he cares about their fate and their future. In fact, the way it kind of translated to me a few years ago, I'll never forget this, is that those in danger always take priority over those who are safe. Those in danger always take priority over those that are safe. Even though those that are safe don't always understand it, those in danger always take priority. Because when something of value to you is missing, you pull out the stops to find it. You want to find it no matter what. I don't know if you remember, but last May, there was a little boy that was lost in Floyd County. His name was uh, Kenneth Howard, 22 months old, less than two years old, basically. This little boy wandered away from home, and his parents couldn't find him. It's a pretty rough area where he he lived, and so they called out the uh, emergency crews, and crews from multiple agencies were soon on the scene, and they used dogs, they used ATVs, they used helicopters, drones with thermal cameras, technology, people, everything they could to search this rough terrain. They searched for one day and then two days, and people began to think, even if we find them, it's going to be recovery at this point. Still couldn't find this little 22-month-old boy until three days later, three full days later, they found him safe and sound, but only because the whole community had poured out, even from other states, because everybody showed up to search for this little boy, because his value was so great in everyone's eyes. I want to tell you, that kind of search is the heart of God for people who are far from him. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Can we just insert the word sent? That he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, Jesus made it clear to us. He made it perfectly clear that there is nothing more important than the seeking of that which is lost in order to find it, to restore it, to rescue it. And that God would send his most important treasure, his only, only son here to the earth to seek us and to rescue us. And look at the spirit of the search. You see the spirit of the searcher because whenever that which is lost is found, there's a, there's a spirit of celebration. It's not anger. It's not bitterness. It's not resentment. It's not punishment. It's not time out, no discipline, no lecture. It's a party. That's how God looks at us. That's how much he loves us. In the middle of those stories, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Rejoicing in heaven over one. That heaven rejoices Because Jesus, who is the hero of heaven, the one who was sent, accomplishes the mission he was sent for. He discovered, he sought, he found, and he saved the lost. And that's what Jesus came for. That's what the mission was all about. See, Jesus sent on this mission, and you've got to understand the mission is personal because you and I are the recipients of the mission. We are the mission he came to seek and find. You are the missing 
son, daughter, the missing coin, the missing sheep in the parable. Don't lose sight of what he was talking about. And Jesus wants nothing more than to have you back home in his home, in his possession. And he will do anything, anything possible to bring you back home. Now, that's an awesome story. And that's the gospel in a, in a nutshell, to be honest with you. But you know what? There's more to the story. The story goes beyond that because there's a responsibility for that which is found, right? How do we respond once we've received the gift we've been given? For those of us who are Christ followers, the story goes deeper and becomes personal. Listen to these words of Jesus in John 20. Just as the Father sent me, I will send you. Jesus kind of turns the corner now and gives us some personal responsibility. Jesus wasn't just sent on a mission, he came to send us on one as well, the same mission that he has. And once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become one with him in every way, including the mission that he's come to, and that is to live a sin life, sit life. You know, there's an old tale, and I heard this many, many years ago. I'm sure it's not true, but it illustrates this well. But the story was that when Jesus returned back to heaven, I mean, he had been through quite a bit. Think about all he went through in 33 years on this earth and, and how he was treated and how he lowered himself to become a human being. And then he went through mockery and then the, the experience of, of, of suffering and being whipped and put to death eventually. But he finished that mission after he had died, been resurrected, gone back into heaven, that the angels crowded around him to congratulate him and to welcome him home because he, they had missed him while he had been here on the earth. And he began to tell them the stories, the stories that probably we've never even heard, all the stories, and told them about the mission. And when he finished, they all were just, uh, just celebrating him. And Michael the archangel kind of broke the spirit by asking him, well, Jesus, what happens now? What happens now? And Jesus said, well, I left behind 11 faithful men who are going to carry out the mission forward. They're going to declare my message. They're going to establish and build my church. And every generation will carry that until the whole world is one. And there, for once, was silence in heaven. Why? Because the angels know us too well. The angels know the weaknesses of men. No one said anyone, anything until finally Michael spoke up again and said, well, what if they fail? What if they don't do that? What, what will happen then? What is your backup plan? And Jesus said, I don't have any other plan. You know, that should be a sobering thought, even though that story is probably made up, that we are the plan. You and I are the plan for our generation. You and I are the plan in our community. We don't do it alone, but we have to assume that it's all on us. It's on us, and there's no backup plan then now you and I are the sent ones. You and I are the ones responsible for the mission. It's been handed to us. But the problem is that many of us are not willing to receive the mission. We're not willing to be sent. We don't understand that our lives are made up that way. Because our lives, even though we've had a great gift given to us, we've been the recipients, we don't have a burden to share that with anybody else. And there's a problem with that. Because we can't assume everybody else is going to do it. And really what's happened today is that we have received all the good gifts, and then we've just been living it out and loving it, right? In fact, someone called this whole personal focus spiritual narcissism. 
I don't know if you remember Greek mythology, but Narcissus was the character was one day was passing a, 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 a body of water that was still, and he saw his reflection in the water, and he was so enamored with himself that he spent the rest of his life worshiping himself. And that's what narcissism is all about today. It's a preoccupation with self. And many of us don't have time for Jesus' mission because we're so caught up in our own mission, our own life. We're sent on our own mission. We send ourselves to do this and that. We say things like, I, me, and mine. That mentality replaces the personal, the, uh, the personal mission that God wants us to, to, to be called to. You know, even we as Christians sometimes do that. We think about even our worship as being all about us. And we say things like, well, I want to go where I get fed. You know, I need to be ministered to. People walk out sometime, I know you do, and say, well, I didn't get anything out of the service. As if everything in the world was all about me and mine, all revolving around me and for us. And that's the problem today. Because many of us never see others as the mission. We only see ourselves as the mission. Contrast that with what Jesus said. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Whoever wants to be first must become last. Whoever wants to be great must become the slave of all. Not my will, but your will be done. When you read phrases like that and statements like it, it reminds us that it's not about us. It's not about me. I've received something great, but now the mission uh, of Christ is to be others. And for many of us, it's not the mission and the will of Christ that we seek, but our own. We want the church to be focused on meeting the needs of Christians instead of winning the world of, of non-Christians. And you know that statement I made before, that lost people always take priority over those who are safe? It just makes some people mad. It just makes some people mad. I've, I've had that personally happen, and many people have left because that just made them mad. But I believe that's the truth of God's Word. I think that's what it's all about. Many churches in America function with that sort of philosophy, and that's why a lot of churches are dying or stagnant. That's why the church in America, in my opinion, overall is not growing because we don't see ourselves as being sent. We don't see the mission that we're called to be on because we've made, in fact, the church our own little world that serves us and services us. I think you probably heard this before. I'm sure I've used it. But this analogy just explains it better than any I could imagine. And that was that in the late 1940s, the U.S. Navy commissioned an $80 million troop carrier. Now, $80 million in the 40s was a lot. Of, it's a lot of money today, right? But it, it was really a lot of money. But one ship, $80 million. But remember, we had just gone through World War II and, and transporting troops had been one of the biggest challenges that we had. We had, we had fronts, uh, military fronts all over the world or several different places. And so we, we want to have a ship that can transport troops. And so the new ship could carry 15,000 troops at a time. It could travel at 51 miles an hour in the water, which is pretty quick. It could outrun and outgun any ship in the water. And it could be anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. I mean, that was a big order, but they were able to do that. $80 million. And so they built this ship, and it was named the SS United States. SS United States. Now, you would think that ship uh, would be noteworthy in, in naval history, right? Well, but instead, the U.S. or the SS United States became a luxury liner 
for presidents, for heads of states, and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during the 17 years of service. So all that money, all that planning, only 17 years was she in service. As a luxury liner, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. Instead, she could only carry less than 2,000 passengers. But those passengers really could enjoy themselves. They had the luxury of 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a troop carrier, she became a cruise ship. Instead of carrying soldiers who were going into battle, it was a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who just wanted to cruise across the Atlantic Ocean. And you know what? Things look differently on a, on a uh, luxury liner than they do on a troop carrier. The, the faces of soldiers preparing for battle and those of patrons who are enjoying their bonbons are radically different, right? Pretty big difference in how people were thinking about that. A troop carrier has an urgent task. You got to move soldiers to, to the, the field of battle, but the luxury liner is really all about the passengers' crews and, and what they feel. Now, which one of these do you think the church is intended to be? To be a troop carrier, right? But in many cases, what has the church become? It's become a cruise ship. I believe the purpose of the church is to mobilize and send people to accomplish the mission of Jesus, to seek and save the lost. But you know what? It's so easy for us to lose sight of our mission and to make it all about us and the ride and the cruise. And so we're going to have to wonder, are we going to move the ship into battle or are we going to sit around and wait for the staff to serve more hors d'oeuvres to us? kind of becomes the bottom line. And we have to decide what God's called us to be. Are we going to be sent or are we going to be served? And my hope is that we will see ourselves as a church to be sent, not a cruise ship, a warship. I think that's what we're saved to be. I think that's what we're served, we're sent to be. And you know what? A lot of us have to change that thought in our mind about the whole church thing. We really do. It's a, it's a thought we have to wrap our heads around and we begin to discipline and change our actions as well. And we got a great chance for that coming up. And as you know, probably Easter is coming in just a few weeks. It is April the 12th this year, a little bit later than some. It's a great time. Easter is a big time for church, you know. We got a series leading up to that called Journey to the Cross or Journey to Easter, Easter and the Cross together. And we're going to use the hashtag Journey Together. You'll be seeing some stuff on social media uh, if you're not, if you're not a uh, fan of our page, I wish you would do that. But you'll see some things there, how that you can be a part of that. But there's some ways that you can already prepare to respond to the mission and challenge. The first thing you need to do is make sure that you're safe. You can't save somebody else when you're lost yourself. So you got to make sure that you are safe yourself. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to talk to you down front this morning. I will be right here, and I would love to have a conversation with you. If you have in the past given your life to Christ, but you've never been obedient to Him in baptism, which is a, an outward sign of your decision, you're having your heart of submission to Christ, I would love to talk to you about that. We're going to have a baptism Sunday on Easter Sunday. Go public with that. We're, we're going to, it's going to be a great day. There will be baptisms, and we want you to be a part of that if you have not done so or you don't do it sooner, all right? We're going to have a class on April the 5th that... Uh, will allow you to ask questions or hear what baptism is all about. 
You can go online if you want to register for that class or just show up and we'll tell you more information when we get closer. That's the first thing you need to do. Make sure that you're right, that you have received the mission, respond to the mission, and then secondly, begin praying for Easter. Pray for other people. Pray for what goes on in those weeks and those days leading up to Easter. On April the 5th, which is the Sunday before Easter, we're calling that Transformation Sunday. We're going to talk about where Pilate had to decide who Jesus is. He made the wrong choice, obviously, but we can, be, we can choose to know and acknowledge who Jesus is and be transformed. Third thing you can do is volunteer. We're going to need some help on Easter because there'll be some guests who'll come and we want to make sure that they are met in the parking lot. We need people out there. We need first impressions people. We need children's ministry. We need people that are just warm workers and, and volunteers for Jesus. It's a great way to reach out. And then fourthly, begin inviting everyone you can to this series and to Easter Sunday. People who won't come any other time of the year would agree to come on Easter Sunday. So invite them. We want to blow out the, the doors on that day and just have an awesome day. And that's a part, a way that we can become a part of the mission. And while you're at it, begin to think about the people in your life who do not know Jesus. We're going to talk more about them next week and about our response to them. But encourage them to come to know Jesus, to respond to him, to join the journey toward Jesus Christ. And here's the reason why, because you are not just saved, you are sent. You are sent. I, this is going to be a short series, three weeks, but at the end of that, I want you to have this mentality, I have been saved to be sent, Amen. is why I'm saved. Not just for me, but I am saved to be sent for others. We're going to transition right now to a time that we remember the one Jesus who was sent to us, the mission that, that God called out. And Jesus responded to say, I'll go. I will go because the need is so great that someone has to go to give their life so that sins might be forgiven, to atone for sin. Someone has to go to begin a church. Someone has to go to, to initiate people into this relationship with God to bring them in and to save them. And Jesus was the only one who could do it. And he willingly went. And we celebrate that in just a few moments if you're a believer, we invite you to share with us in our time of communion where we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice that reminds us of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we take those, a very symbolic, just a couple of things that we take, but we do that symbolic of Jesus' love for us and his sacrifice. And as you do that and respond, I want you to think and acknowledge his coming and to say, you know what, because he came, now I'm sent. Would you do that, please? Let's pray together as we prepare for that. Father, we want to thank you for today. God, we're so grateful that you looked down and saw us in our need and our, our loss. Lord, I just want to ask that, that you would touch us, God, that you would remind us of your amazing love. I, Father, I pray that, that we would understand the, the immense sacrifice that it took for you to give your son. As any of us who are parents could think about giving our child up, allowing them to suffer allowing them to be put to death for someone else. But Father, that was his mission. And we're so grateful that Jesus chose to accept the mission and responded and that he died for us, Lord. And as we take this, this bit of bread and this cup of juice, Lord, Father, can we just appreciate that sacrifice? But Lord, more than that, can we go away knowing that now we have a personal responsibility that we too are sent? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.